Blog Talk Radio. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. We have a great show today with a very special guest who's coming back for her second appearance on the podcast in a short amount of time, and I know all of you are going to be excited about hearing from her again. And before we get started, let me make a couple of announcements. First of all, I'd like to thank all of the people who registered for my courses in Louisville, on Thursday, December 5th, and in Indianapolis on Friday, December 6th. Those events are now sold out, and I am thrilled about that, and I am ready for a great couple of days. Secondly, I wanted to mention that all TeachMeToTalk.com products uh, are available with free shipping in the United States through Christmas. So if you wanted to order some things and you've kind of held out, now is the time because you can get shipping on us. This is our little present to you for the holidays. Thirdly, I wanted to mention some seasonal therapy guides. These are automatic downloads from my sister website at myeit.com, and the Christmas therapy guide and 12 tasks for Christmas are cute, cute videos that, again, they're immediately available, um, they're downloadable, and you get a written uh, therapy guide with that, which is a PDF listing several great holiday activities for toddlers and young preschoolers. And the last thing I wanted to announce today is my course, Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, will be on DVD shortly. So if you need some, if if you're at crunch time with your end-of-the-year CEUs, please check that out. That should be available for sale tomorrow or the next day. So I wanted to mention those things. All right, let's move right along to today's show. We are going to be talking about communication challenges and different issues that we see in children who have been internationally adopted. And we have Tatiana back with us today from Smart Speech Therapy. Hi, Tatiana. How are you? Hi, Laura. I'm well. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm excited to talk about this topic. And you were so passionate last time you were on the show. And we kind of ended our show about genetic syndromes, talking about specifically fetal alcohol syndrome and how that is, that's an issue in so many of our little friends who've been adopted internationally. And that this is one of your clinical specialties, right, Tatiana? You've done some yes, writing and lots correct. of work. And so I'm so glad that you agreed to come back on and talk with us about that, and we are very excited, again, to hear what you have to say. And you sent me a great link this morning that I think you said you just received today. Yes, yeah, it was an article which, which, which was just published in Adoption Advocate, um, and it's about how to recognize the, you know, kind of a risk of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders in select group of internationally adopted children. And it's an article in which I review what do manifestations of FASD kind of look like during infancy, toddlerhood, elementary years, and adolescence, and discuss, you know, what is needed to be done by parents if they suspect that their children, their adopted children, or specifically internationally adopted children, may have had uh, alcohol exposure in utero. Well, and you are the author of this um, great article, Tatiana. I've had a chance to look through it, and I guess that will sort of be our text and your outline for what you'll be talking about today. Is that correct? Well, not exactly, because I wanted to talk about okay. internationally adopted kids kind of a, in a very um, broad way, because okay. I kind of wanted to begin by emphasizing that, you know, a lot of times we tend to, um, you know, kind of focus on the negative. Unfortunately, you know, even right. it, with me, in my private practice, you know, in my dealings with a select group of internationally adopted kids that I have worked with, I have worked with some very, very challenging clients from uh, certain select regions, and International adopted children, when it comes to their linguistic outcomes, there's actually tremendous, tremendous variability, which is dependent on amazing number of factors. So it's very important to understand that as a group, 
it does not mean that internationally adopted kids will have poor language outcomes. Rather, right. you know, it's actually the opposite. A number of them, and actually great many of them, just are just fine. Unfortunately, it's the kids who get the most attention are the ones with the challenges, and those are, you know, the group of kids that we tend to focus on in our clinical practice right. and, of course, in research. Well, and I will just say that I have had phenomenal outcomes with many, many, many children who've been internationally adopted because I've seen them as toddlers. They've been adopted at earlier ages. I think families have been very fortunate that they were able to work with agencies so that they had a good idea of any specific challenge that a child might be facing. Uh, because of that initial period, maybe they were institutionalized. I've had some children who were adopted from um, Asian countries, though, who were in foster homes, and so they didn't have the whole uh, institutional experience. And so those children really had good outcomes because they had really attentive caregivers in that first um, year or so before they were adopted. And so, again, I think that's a great point to mention that not all children will have a poor outcome. Yeah. And especially... And, it, and it's very interesting because uh, of what you mentioned, and it's absolutely the case. You know, research and literature in general really supports the case that kids who spend time in foster care versus um, in orphanages and institutions or kids who right. have been sent into those orphanages and institutions after living with parents for a certain period of time and not from birth, again, had much, much, much better outcomes both cognitively and socially right. and linguistically than any other children. And of course, here what's really important to kind of know is uh, probably one of the first things that comes to mind is, well, which country and which region are the kids coming from because the care these kids receive in different countries is completely different, and it really differs from country to country. For example, I specialize in uh, dealing uh, and working with kids primarily adapted from former Russian republics. That's really my kind right. of area of specialty. So my exposure to other to kids adopted from other countries, such as, you know, let's say Democratic Republic of Congo or Vietnam or, uh, you know, China, is, tends to be really quite limited versus my general, my general specialty. But it's like, for example, uh, quite recently I encountered a prospective adoptive parent who was talking that she will be adopting a child from South Korea. So I asked her, well, you know, I don't know much about it. Why don't you tell me about the quality of orphanages there? And she says, oh, no, no, no. It's, uh, they don't have a system of orphanages. They have a system right. of foster care there. And so right. this child has, uh, or even though this child does not have um, parent figure, it has a caregiver, foster caregiver, who will be with them until the time of adoption. And of course, already, you know, definitely getting the sense that, you know, from all the impressions she had so far, it's already much more favorable picture than of a child who, you know, had very poor prenatal um I guess, right. predisposition due to alcohol-related or drug-related maternal consumption and then was basically in an institution from the get-go for like five years. Right. And I have certainly had that experience with two different families in the last, say, four or five years who've adopted from um, South Korea, both those families. And, again, those little girls are doing very, very well because they didn't have those challenges that you mentioned with um, – lack of prenatal care, well, I, I won't even go that far. They certainly had good attachment with their caregivers, even though they were not parents, and they certainly knew that those children were going to be adopted, but still being in a loving, caring environment seemed to make a really big difference for those little girls because they are thriving now. And that has not always been my experience with families that I've worked with, that um, you've, you've mentioned Russia specifically, and I've had the privilege of working with several families who've adopted from Russia. And I would say those families were more, for me, five to ten years ago. 
And many of those children, I think, even though there was no formal diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome, probably, um, and, and again, the lack of, of prenatal care was certainly a problem nearly for all of those children as well. Right, and that's actually what I wanted to kind of focus on, not necessarily on adoptions from Russia, uh, because okay. which right now, of course, everybody knows have been halted due to, right. Um, right. you know, governmental ban. I wanted to actually focus on those kids who don't do so well post-adoption, because that's those right. are the ones whose parents actually are very, very worried about their development. Right. And that's what I kind of right. wanted to focus on, how to kind of recognize all of these warning signs and how to, you know, really consider whatever limited information is um, provided to us and start making educated judgments and clinical decisions based on that. I think that's great. So walk us through some of those warning signs. And let's start, since I specialize in birth to three, and even though we're going to talk about the whole lifespan of these children, let's start, though, with that period in infancy. So what are some things that if if, – adoptive parents are looking at these children and kind of looking in history, what are some things that they might see that would be a clue to that um, during that infancy period? Okay. Well, to begin with, it's also, we need to consider, you know, kind of the broad implications at what age of the child, meaning can, um, you know, what age is the child at the time of adoption? Now, it used to be, now that, of course, in terms of it always varies tremendously from country to country in terms of how, what is the youngest age of the child parents can adopt. And in the past, in the past, a number of, uh, you know, a number of parents were able to adopt adopt kids which were relatively young, which were approximately right. even like nine months of age. Now, international adoptions prior to nine months of age w- w- still kind of happened, but they were incredibly, incredibly rare. But usually right. the average age was, you know, nobody was adopting really, you know, younger than that in, right. in large amounts. So, you know, again, we all know that if a child has been in an institution, typically, you know, they will experience a delay in their development. And that delay can really kind of um, really range. There could be like a really, you know, wide range in that, in a sense. So... Even though kids who are like nine months of age, they're not really expected to speak yet. But if the parents are, you know, adopting kids that young, it's reasonable for them to see those kids making sounds, some form of sounds, hopefully babbling, perhaps vegetative sounds, or anything like that, but not really being completely silent. And that's a very, you know, and that's a really important point when, you know, we know that there will be a delay, but we want to know, you know, there's still something happening, you know, in, right. in terms of comprehension and, you know, expression. So, for example, you know, let's say the kids are older and let's say parents are adopting somebody who's about, you know, year and a half or two years old. Again, very common for kids coming from institutions to not really speak at all at that point still. But at least they ought to be making some sounds or at least they ought to be producing some syllables. And of course, they ought to be comprehending, you know, one-step directions, bring me this, put that down, no stop, and, you know, and certain things like that. So we do expect delay. We expect delay, but we want to be on the lookout that that delay is not that, you know, significant. Now, a number of studies have actually done research and explained on how what younger kids adopted younger than two years of age ought to kind of look like or what to kind of sound like when they are adopted. Sharon Glennon did, um, you know, is a... 
very well-respected researcher in this field, and she's done a number of studies, and she's even designed, you know, she's given some pretty clear outline of what those children, you know, ought to be doing when they show up, and what kind of questions parents can ask pre-adoption. And actually, that uh, questionnaire, these questionnaires that she designed are available on her, you know, Tucson University website. Okay. So that's something that parents can actually access. And there she, you know, she's explaining that. I'm actually going to pull up that link to mention that. That sounds great. I'd love to share that. And I'm anxious to hear what these questions are and find her conclusions from her, her work so that we can share that with therapists too. And I know lots of therapists, um, in state early intervention programs get to see these children pretty immediately if states are still um, qualifying children who are um, at significant risk, even if there's no um, diagnosis there. So I know this is important information to share. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hold on one second. I'm having, for some reason, I'm having trouble finding that website. But... Um, Give me just um, You can send one. it to me later if you want yes. to, Tatiana, if you can't find it, and then we'll post the link. But you can just, you can just talk about her information right. even informally. Right, absolutely. So essentially, um, you know, so essentially kids then moving on to kids adopted before, um, you know, around three years of age, again, hopefully they're already uh, producing some language. Hopefully they're already speaking at least in uh, single words when they're being right. adopted. And, um, you know, so that in, with respect to that delay. Now, when we compare that to uh, typically developing kids, we already understand, uh, you know, the basic milestones. For example, kids who are 12 to, 13, 12 to 13 months of age are expected to maybe say one or two words. Kids who are 18 months of age should have a small vocabulary, hopefully between 35 to 50 words. Kids around uh, two years of age should be making um, two-word phrases, and kids around three years of age should be speaking in, um, you know, fairly full three to five-word sentences. So when we compare an adopted you know, so when we compare typically developing kid and adopted kid, and we see that somebody who is typically developing is already speaking in sentences, meanwhile, somebody who is three is still at the single word level and, the, and their vocabulary is still way below 50 words, now we start having serious concerns and we start thinking, okay, um, you know, is this, you know, is this, purely due to, let's say, institutional delay? Is this something right. which it might resolve kind of on its own, given stimulation by the parents? Or is this something right. which is indicative of a true language delay? And this is what we kind right. of need to look at. So, of course, there are all these uh, tremendous amount of warning flags. But it's interesting that not everybody kind of um, notices them. For example, um, one, of, one interesting trend I noticed with the internationally adopted kids who kind of come through my private practice, and this may be, you know, typically this is post-adoption, you know, it could be a few years post-adoption or, right. you know, a few months post-adoption where I am not the first therapist dealing with those right. kids. So one of the interesting things I noticed in that, that when I look at the background history of their speech-language reports I receive from their schools or from early intervention or from just other private practices, I noticed that a lot of SLPs are not including a lot of data there. It's almost like I noticed the requisite couple of lines where it says, oh, this child was very internationally adopted and uh, language milestones are unknown. So there's like a very, very big blank. And that's always very disconcerting yeah. to me because sometimes even though there is a great paucity of data, we do know a lot more than we kind of, you know, we kind of put down on paper. For example, okay, so the adoptive parent may, may have adopted that child at 3.2 years of age, and they may not have known their developmental milestones prior to that time. But what was known to them was in what shape was the child's language at the time of adoption. 
So right. if that child's birth language was delayed, that ought to be in that background information history. Also, right. uh, a lot of adoptive parents receive a lot of kind of anecdotal or hearsay da- data uh, about the kid. Now, even though it may not be in the report, you know, in the official adoption records, it's still important to include that in the report and say, you know, adoptive parent spoke to the orphanage staff or spoke to the, in, you know, staff in an institution, and this was the information they received regarding the child's development. Now, coming back to um, kids who are, you know, adopted, let's say, from Russia, what was very, very interesting, some of my colleagues who specialized in that, and some of what information had been pointed out to me was that there was a huge discrepancy between the information received by adoptive parents from around the world and adoptive parents in Russia themselves. So kind of like intra-country adoption and inter-country inter-country adoption. And it was very Uh interesting that the information available for Russian parents was just, there was so much more of it. Russian parents were receiving so much more information about that same kid versus American parents. And that, again, has to do with, I think, kind of like, I guess a lot of it is impact of culture. A lot of it is what, you know, a lot of it is just what kind of information is revealed to kind of, quote, unquote, your own kind versus foreigners type of a deal. (laughs) Now, people who do know about Russian adoptions, they also know that, the way it works in Russia, well, the way it used to work in any, um, in any kind of former Russian republics, is that no kid gets adopted out of the country until there's ample opportunity or approximately six months for Russians to adopt that child. Russians really don't wow. like giving up those kids. They want to yeah. keep their kids. In fact, due to incredibly high alcoholism rates in Russia, there's a great amount of sterility. And that information is available in, uh, in statistics in, in their records. Because of that sterility, wow. a lot of Russians adopt, you know, kids in the country. Wow. Now, the kids they don't adopt are usually kids with disabilities. Exactly. That's what I was going to ask. If you had read that, Tatiana, or, or if you were privy to that information. And I certainly thought that before, but, you know, I don't know that that's just documented. As, and it's very interesting, as, uh, and it's documented yeah. very, very poorly. It's kind of like this right. well-known secret, which is only kind right. of privy to certain people who go and who – and it's very interesting because you go into that orphanage as, you know, somebody who is not a Russian speaker, and people will be pleasant to you, and they're going to be nice to you, and they're going to, you know, divulge certain information, but they're not going to divulge as much or reveal as much right. if you go there, even as – you know, but somebody who speaks the language, somebody who kind of, you know, can get in with the in crowd. And it's very, very interesting how the information changes and uh, what types of anecdotal reports you start receiving. Because what many parents, you know, let's say parents from Australia or UK or United States, what they didn't realize is that no kid in Russia gets to be in the orphanage without a court order. And in, wow. that court, in that court order, usually what it does say is the reason how that kid ended up in the orphanage. And what that usually, 90% of those court orders actually say, that parental rights were terminated due to abuse, neglect, and chronic alcoholism. Wow. However, and, you know, I don't know that I've heard any parent really tell me that per se. I, this, is, this is, you know, I guess it's information that we kind of, I suspect it, but again, to have you talk about it in this formal kind of way with, you know, there's a court order there and there's been a legal procedure, I don't know, a really kind of big deal. I don't know if therapists have always been aware of that, the children they're working with. And it's very interesting because one of my colleagues who is a pediatrician specializing in international adoptions, she actually teaches a course. Well, she taught a course before the cessation of, you know, before the ban on adoptions. Right. She taught an absolutely right. fascinating course about 
how these parents, how kind of, um, you know, non-Russian-speaking parents who are adopting internationally and who were adopting from Russia, how they can locate the information that they seek and what kind of questions they can ask. And she always had this expression, you can find what you're looking for if you dig deep, deep enough. And if yeah. you know who to ask and what to ask for, because right, that's right. a very big thing in Russia. If you know if you know who to talk to and how to ask, it's going to be amazing what doors will be kind of open to you. Now, again, there is, it's a very specific thing, and it's very country-specific. Then when you move on to another country, such as China, there is also going to be a completely different type of experience when it comes to international adoption, because they have their own cultural views and their own cultural barriers and their own opinions about who should adopt, who cannot. Like, for example, right. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but uh, I believe that in China, if you are significantly overweight, you cannot adopt. Wow. See, wow. it's kind of like, it's a very, very interesting type of, um, I don't believe I'm mistaken in that. That's what been, that's, I believe I've read that in kind of their requirements. But it's kind of like, what does that kind of have to do with somebody's abilities as a parent? You know what I mean? To be a good parent. Right, right. And so there so, are some cultural biases there, right. So unfortunately, adoption is just such a very culture-specific also type of a phenomenon. Now, what's very right. important to understand about current trends in international adoption, which is something that I published in um, um, in Perspectives in, um, I'm sorry, it was Perspectives of Global Communication Disorders back in their October, back in October, in their October 2013 issue, is the changing trends in international adoption. And there have been changing trends, trends which have been, you know, kind of, uh, especially since, I would say, 2008, and of course, particularly now. And the two most uh, noteworthy ones are, number one, more and more older children are coming up for adoption from many, many different countries in general. And we're talking about Latvia, we're talking about China, we're talking about, you know, Kazakhstan, whatever it is that whoever is, a, you know, whichever is the country which is open to adoption, which, by the way, I'm sure as you're aware, changes every single day. You can right. look at that website. You can look at the U.S. State Department website, and you could see one day something is open, something is closed, which was open yesterday, which is Right. It's just such a phenomenon to me. Nobody can keep up with that. So that's one well, trend. Well, and that's so frustrating for parents who are really wanting a child and really oh, absolutely. waiting for a baby. And that, that's been my experience on just kind of a personal level, just with, with friends who are in that process and they get their country changed, you know, by whatever agency they're working with. You know, first, and I've had several parents who, are, who thought they were going to have Guata, uh, children from Guatemala or South American children, and all of a sudden they're kind of shifted and they're looking at children again, um, you know, from Asia or another part of the world that they had not considered before. Absolutely. Now, the second trend, which is something to really, really take into consideration, is that certain countries, for example, China, are just purely sending out disabled children. And that's their trend, right. that the kids are... Right. now. With Russia, it was never a secret. That was kind of, everybody always knew that, that the kids coming out of Russia are, you know, many of them are coming out with uh, significant deficits. But, you know, that was not necessarily the case with China, and that was not necessarily the case with a number of other countries. But more right. and more countries are now sending out both older and, uh, you know, developmentally disabled children with a number of, you know, either medical or genetic diagnosis. Now, another right. very specifically with respect to China, and something that I learned through research, is that they have an incredible rise in genetic mutations in the last five or so years. We're talking about really? ridiculous increase. I've read somewhere it's almost like as much as 800 or 900 percent. Wow. Why and that, is that information... What are the reasons? Uh, the reason is because they have very, very poor environmental control. And, you know, in terms of um, what is going into their food and what is going into their okay. ground and how many, you know, 
how many pesticides or how many, you know, right. genetic modifiers they're using, okay. you know, to rapidly produce things in general, whether right. it's for right. the industry or for personal consumption. And uh, I can actually sense. as well send a link to that. There's, uh, I believe there's a 2008 or 2009 study which spoke about that, which by, um, and I could actually locate it in my, um, in my records, which spoke about that there's a tremendous amount of, you know, mutations contributing to, you know, disabilities. Wow, that's interesting. And I have a friend who's just adopted a little girl from China, and she's deaf. And so that's really interesting that you uh, talk about that. Yeah, and oh, and uh, speaking about that, I also very recently I'm forum. I've heard something very very interesting about a gene, something about uh, Chinese adoptees and. Uh, Something I see I can't remember anymore, but I'm going to dig around. But I think I have some more information on that topic because something is bothering me, something is niggling in my consciousness about that. Right. And I've recently seen that on, you know, about hearing loss. I would love for you to forward that to me so I can forward that on to that mom. And I'm not working with that family. I'm just friends with them. But I certainly follow her and social media. And so I'm kind of... Oh, there we go. Got it. It's called, mutation, it's called mutation-triggered. I'm in a glucoside exposure hearing loss. Wow. Now, that's not necessarily – that's very, very interesting. And in this one, it wasn't necessarily mentioning China, but it was uh, – this one I was talking about actually South Africa, but still very interesting since you mentioned that, you know, since you mentioned hearing. Yeah. Right. It is really interesting. This is about to get a cochlear implant in December, so we're excited to see what will happen with her and with her future. But she's just been adopted by a wonderful family, and they've internationally adopted other older boys from Africa. So to have a little girl from China, has completed their family, but she did come with a whole host of issues. Some of her feeding issues are resolving now, from what I understand. But getting her the ability to hear and understand language is, of course, a primary focus for them. Absolutely. And that's that's something that... Um Kind of like piggybacking on your statement that, you know, they, she's been adopted by a wonderful family. And it's absolutely amazing um, how wonderful the parents are who are adopting our kids. Well, our right. kids, who are adopting the kids that we work with. <laughs> they are. They are absolutely most loving, most generous, most fantastic parents. And right. that's actually a very important point, that adoption does mix significantly the effects of institutionalization. That adoption uh, I totally can... believe that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I to- yeah. yeah, I've really seen, again, some really positive outcomes just with these environmental changes alone. Yeah, and... Uh, and it, it really does go a very, very long way in improving outcomes for these children because, you know, when we really look at adoptive parents as a whole, they generally t- happen to be, as a group, they tend to be, you know, well-educated, typically right. well-to-do because clearly you need quite a bit of financial resources Money. to adopt yeah. the children, <laughs> child internationally. So these tend to be very, very – so these also are the parents who will spend a significant amount of time on simulating their children both socially, linguistically, and cognitively. And they're really going to spend, you know, quite a bit of time on kind of trying to mitigate those effect of institutionalization where these kids had very, very, um, you know, very little stimulation, linguistic or otherwise. That certainly has been my experience, and I think parent education is so critical in those, even in that pre-adoptive period, so that parents understand really common sense, every everyday things that they can do to improve a child's language abilities and then that first piece, that social emotional attachment piece and helping children become regulated and all of those things that we need to do to provide those foundational um, pieces so that a child can go on to learn to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. What else have you got for us, Tatiana? What's our next piece? Our next um, we okay. talked about. Okay, go ahead. Then I wanted to kind of talk about you know what can speech language pathologists do when they um, you know when a parent comes to them and says, "I just adopted a child. I'm concerned about their language abilities. Does my child have?" A language disorder, or is this something where, you know, I can continue to stimulate them, their language, you know, is just going to improve in their own. And that's what I kind of wanted to, um, you know, to talk about. So, you know, you, so typically, here's what's, um, you know, so here's what's, what's going to uh, happen. So let's say this is a child adopted between the ages of, um, you know, zero to three. So if they are adopted between zero to three, so probably the most common source for, you know, of intervention is going to be the early intervention system in each state. Right. So if the parents go there, you know, speech-language pathologists can, you know, have the option of, you know, hopefully of not dismissing the parental concerns outright and assessing the child and determining whether the child is, um, you know, progressing appropriately post-adoption or they are, you know, showing some, you know, kind of true lags. So typically, um, within the first year after adoption, we have tremendous, tremendous gains in language. And even true language disordered and language delayed kids will still show those incredible gains almost right away. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, Probably first and foremost is that all of a sudden, these kids went from being completely non-stimulated to being stimulated you know, by their parents, community experiences, school, what have you. Uh, the second reason is also for the growth of, you know, that vocabulary is because, you know, most of the kids are adopted by parents who do not speak their language. And... Um, so what ends up happening, these kids kind of need to learn the language of the parents, you know, because they are now in a survival mode. They need to be, um, you know, they need to understand the parents. They need to communicate with them. So they have this, as one of my co- colleagues pointed out, kind of the, the drive to do that is very, very powerful. And uh, right. so a lot of kids will start gaining what is typically known as um, communicative language fluency, which is basically they get they get this they get the social language. They very quickly learn um, kind of an array of nouns, verbs, and adjectives to kind of descriptor words, ver- action words, um, you know, names of objects, and they start even putting together rote sentences and they start expressing their wants needs pretty pretty quickly. We're talking about within six months to a year, they're pretty much on top of it. They pretty much got it. And it's very important to understand that this is not the same language skills and this is not the same language abilities that you need in order to succeed academically in the classroom. Those two are completely different skill sets. That's and that's a on. huge, huge point. That's huge because as early interventionists, we really do look at that home environment and making sure that children are expressing their most basic wants and needs. But you're exactly right. There's often a huge gap when those kids start preschool and then certainly as they enter kindergarten because those, those pieces aren't always in place. Right. And it's important, again, of course, not everybody but some. Right. Some will do because there's a, there has been a great debate. Are these kids as a group doing better or are these kids as a group showing deficits when it comes to academic gains? And research has kind of gone back and forth. Um, right. A bunch of research in the 90s said they're doing ter- terrible. Then a bunch of research in the, you know, between 2002 and 2008 or 2009 said, no, 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 they're doing much better. They're doing fine. Then a bunch research in 2010, 2011, 2012 said, nope, they're doing terrible. And of course, now they really don't know what to think of me because the sample sizes are small. We have issues with whatever testing has been used. Some of their skills have not even been looked at. If you really look very, very carefully at the studies, one of the glaring deficits you're going to see, who has studied their problem-solving skills? Who has studied their executive function skills? Who has studied their social language abilities years post-adoption. 
And has it been yeah. studied in younger kids adopted before the age of two, or has it been studied in older kids adopted ages three and older? And of course, there's none of that. So that's why we have such huge variability in our right. studies and in what people are saying and how they're saying it. We just don't have enough data to kind of like analyze. One of, the, one of my findings as a clinical practitioner, mind you, not as a researcher, but as a clinical practitioner, and that's something that I wrote in Advance Magazine back in December 2012, is that even in children adopted less than two years of age, even those select kids who are functioning just grand academically, they can have kind of a internalizing social pragmatic language deficits which are actually starting to interfere with their academics and a very tacit level and are also starting to significantly interfere with their social life. And I published it and I knew, because, and I knew it, it was, I'm sorry, and it was posted in Advanced Magazine. And it was something that I've been, you know, something that I've been noticing, not everybody, of course, but I'm hearing more and more cases where these kids were adopted before the age of two, uh, received very, very, uh, re- either received intervention or didn't even need intervention because they were developing just fine. Went to first grade, went to second grade, all of a sudden hit third grade, and academically they're still earning their A's and their B's. But all of a sudden, teachers are really starting to complain about their behavior. But it wasn't necessarily wow. their behavior, because when they got to me, it, their behavior was fine. It wasn't their behavior. It was their understanding of how to use language and understanding of figurative and abstract language and those finer social you know, cues. That was the issue. Right. The nuances. Right. So it wasn't the behavior. It was their social pragmatic language, was, which was impaired. But, of course, standardized tests showed perfect scores. Because many right. standardized and, tests don't assess social skills. You know, and that's something that parents really need to think about. And, you know, we we sometimes as parents just really want to look at that report card and measure how a child is doing by that rather than looking at all of those very real, real-life problems. And so I can see how those kids would hit the wall and certainly – even children whose parents think they're doing fine might start to hear some very different reports about their children. I, I, I don't see older kids, Tatiana, but I certainly can understand how that would happen. Yeah, and one of the things that we need to kind of keep in mind as a group is that when it comes to, let's say, kind of piggybacking on what I said about behavior difficulties. Now, behavior symptomology, right. it can be externalizing or internalizing. So guess which kids will get all the attention? The ones with externalizing behaviors because the squeaky sure. wheel you know, gets the grease. So the ones who are right. aggressive, the ones who get out of their seat, the ones who kind of, you know, hurl expletives at you and so on and so forth, they're the ones who might start getting services and interventions and so on. How about the kids with internalizing behaviors who have anxiety, depression, withdrawal, you know, inhibition? They are not the ones who may be easily noticed, especially right. if they continue to function relatively well academically. The problem still exists, but the red flags, it's always interesting how the parents always tell me the red flags were always there. We just didn't pay attention to them because it just didn't seem as bad as when a kid has these very disruptive externalizing behaviors which need urgent help. Exactly. And when a kid is compliant, you really do tend to ignore almost everything else (laughs) because they're doing overall what they're supposed to be doing. So I can see that that would be a huge problem. I mean, absolutely. The kid is coming home with a great report card and the kid is not giving you any trouble. What's there to worry about, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But mental health, yeah, Mm -hmm. all those mental health things have lifelong implications for these kinds of kids. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting about it, um, what I've been really reading um, lately is not even research based in the United States. I've been actually trying to read the research on internationally adopted kids from around the world, from, uh-huh. you know, Denmark and Finland and 
Spain. And it's been very, very interesting because I read a very interesting Finnish study. I believe it was published this year, if I'm not mistaken. And it was about the it was about the effect of bullying on international uh, adopted children. And it was interesting that one of the reasons these kids were bullied, again, it was a small sample group. It was almost, uh, it was almost, uh, uh, I think it was about 109 kids between the ages of 9 and 15. Half of them were from Russia. The other half were kind of um, distributed in various amounts from China, I believe, Ethiopia, some other countries. But one of the reasons they were bullied was because of their poor social skills. They were also bullies. They were also in turn bullies because of their poor social skills as well. So there's also that relationship. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things that we also sometimes, there is um, another um, article that I'm writing right now, I'm almost close to completion, is I'm working on an article regarding um, the role of SLPs kind of as a collaborator, successful collaborator on the behavior management teams. And some of the research that I've been looking at, and which, which is absolutely fascinating, not only is there a high concomitance of psychiatric impairments and language deficits, but sometimes what you end up finding after, you, you know, one of my colleagues did a meta, um, Alexandra Hollow, she did a meta-analysis of 22 studies, and she found something absolutely interesting. She looked at um, kids diagnosed with emotional behavioral disturbances, but no history of language impairment. But she looked at the testing results available in those studies, and she found out that 80% of those kids qualify for a diagnosis of language impairment, and about 80, 46% of them actually qualify as moderately impaired. Wow. So did those kids get intervention, Tatiana, or they were those issues just kind of chalked up to that history well, of international adoption so those deficits Well, she address. didn't look at international adopted kids. She just looked at, okay. at, at it in general. Now, oh, coming back to okay, she looked in saying. general statistics. Yeah. She looked at general wow. statistics. She did not look at international adopted kids. What wow. we do know as a whole, what we do know that international adopted kids as a specific group are at significant risk for mental health issues, for psychiatric diagnosis. It generally tends to be quite high. And especially if those kids have undiagnosed fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, if those kids have alcohol-related neurodevelopmental deficits or static encephalopathy or anything alcohol-related, diagnosed, you have high concomitants of additional mental health issues, or sometimes if it's not diagnosed, you can actually be erroneously diagnosed with a mental health, with a, you know, psychiatric impairment without the person realizing that that's driven by your alcohol-related deficits. Right. Talk to us about some of those red flags that we could see, even as practitioners and especially in younger children. And I know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when you were on the show, but I don't want any... Any therapist who's listening to miss these important red flags. Okay. So, of course, the first red flag to me personally when I do these assessments is, okay, what region is the child coming from? Is this child, whether internationally or domestically adopted, coming from a region region known for high alcohol consumption or alcohol tolerance? And that's very, very important. And there's plenty of places in the United States and Canada which are known for high alcohol consumption. So it can be domestically adopted child as well. In fact, oh, a number of agree. yeah, a number totally of studies. Agree. And children who've been in the foster care system, and I'm from Kentucky, so certainly our children in Southeast Kentucky and Appalachia, there's a huge, huge, uh, disproportionate amount of children who who need that diagnosis who may not have gotten it. So we really need to pay attention to those histories. Absolutely. And that's, and that's exactly what I was going to say. We have a disproportionate number of kids in care, whatever they may be, who right. are at significant risk for both, you know, drug and alcohol exposure. Because, you know, when we really look at certain type of, when we really look at it plainly, sometimes when you don't get access to drugs because they might be more costly, the easiest thing to do is to, you know, self-medicate with alcohol because it's available much right. more widely and is much more cheaper. Meanwhile, no drug can affect you to such a degree as, you know, the effect of alcohol, which is like a huge teratogen, coupled with effects of malnutrition. So yeah. nothing affects you as bad as that, and then you have this absolutely 
and then you have what I mentioned, I called it in an earlier show, an acquired syndrome, because this is something which right. is completely preventable. It's just acquired, you know. Let me say, I spoke in West Virginia in November, and a therapist came up to me during the break, and she was talking about her concerns with the abuse of bath salts and how that in the last couple of years they've seen a huge increase in that newer kind of drug. And so she was just talking about the challenges of getting those children diagnosed and of having pediatricians really be that line of defense and how that's a huge focus of their practice, just that community outreach so that even before they get to a therapist, that pediatricians are really looking for that and, and noting those kinds of subtle signs in, in children's um, histories if those kids get to see a doctor at all, because sometimes that's that the issue. Right, well, I right. point out in so many of my articles that a lot of times, depending on where you are and what you're setting, hey, you might be in a school and you're getting this five-year-old kid, and he, you may be like the very first practitioner this kid has exactly. seen, because doctors cost money and early intervention costs money and everything else costs money, but school is free. And exactly. there you go. You so have you show kid. up at kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And exactly. Go ahead. And that's and that's exactly what it is. So any speech language pathologist assessing any kid must first look at the risk factors because guess what? You can find out so much information if you know the risk factors. Because if you're looking at these risk factors and you have this child coming out of an institution and there is a report that the parent, you know, was abusing substances and the parent you know, and the child has experienced physical, sexual abuse, neglect, and so on and so forth, you're looking at these kind of um, exacerbating effects. Because because right. what, what exacerbates alcohol-related deficits will, of course, po- post-birth, you know, abuse and neglect. That exacerbates right. everything even further. Exactly. So exactly. when they're looking at these, you know, so when they're looking at these risk factors, we really kind of need to put, you know, whatever information, we really need to analyze what available information do we have regarding the parent, regarding family history, regarding, you, you know, regarding the whether there is a history of mental illness in the family, whether there is a history of drug and alcohol abuse in the family, you know, right. maternal age, whether kids had previously been in any foster homes, where the number of kids right. from that household has been in the foster homes. And then we right. start to really look at the child. Were there developmental milestones on time or delayed? Now, this is very important to ask the parents very, very specific questions because so many parents don't understand what typical milestones are. You ask a number of parents, what are normal milestones? And they think that speaking first words at the age of three is normal. And they will tell you, yes, my child was developing appropriately. And of course, that was not the case. Why did they tell you that? Not because they were lying, not because they meant to, you know, somehow confuse you, but simply because they don't know any better. But if you ask them, okay, tell me more, when did they start speaking first words? That's when you get a clear picture. I also right. get a little bit nervous when I get a parent who doesn't remember anything. I get a little bit yeah. nervous when a parent can't remember any milestones when they first spoke or they start right. giving you conflicting information. Then I have to be very, right. very careful because now I'm getting the sense, wait, I'm sorry, but the parent is not a reliable informant. And, some, right. and of course, many times when you're dealing with kids who are in care, then of course you have caregivers who are incredibly well-meaning but who certainly were not previously to that information regarding the kid's development, even if it could be kinship care and that aunt or grandma simply just wasn't aware regarding first years of the child's life. So then infants with with, um, alcohol-related deficits may be particularly small, may have difficulty growing. They may be very irritable and difficult to soothe. They may have feeding and swallowing issues. Some kids even have cleft lip and palate depending on that. As they're growing older, their language gains are very, very inconsistent. They're kind of back and forth. They're, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we start noticing in preschool that their judgment is very impaired. They may be too Mm -hmm. friendly with, you know, with strangers. They may have very limited boundaries. They may be incredibly impulsive, and they have huge difficulty learning from experience. Mm 
One of the hallmarks of alcohol-related difficulties is a child is almost like unable to learn from experience. And you need numerous, numerous, numerous teachings, specific reinforcement, and just about everything else for the kid to kind of, for those things to sink in. And then, of course, when they're older, and, oh, I'm sorry, did you want to add something? No, go ahead. You're on a roll, Tatiana. Keep going. (laughs) And, of course, I meant to say that when they're older, when they're in a school system, all of a sudden, you know, you start noticing that these kids, there's a group that are at huge, huge, um, they're having huge issues, learning deficits, reading and writing deficits, math deficits, behavior deficits, social skills deficits, and then you are just seeing that, you know, kind of all of a sudden you're seeing these kids perform very poorly, being, you know, making poor social choices, and right. if that diagnosis is still not made, then what can happen is that these kids' behavior gets blamed. Since nobody knows this is a diagnosis, right. you blame the That's caregiver, exactly. you are a poor right. parent, you blame the kid. You're a terrible kid. But what you don't That's understand exactly right. is that there are neurobehavioral effects of alcohol-related disability on the brain which are going unrecognized, which is right. why... I absolutely hate the phrase if people tell me, well, why do we need that diagnosis in the school? Why do we need to know? We're treating them anyway. They're getting the services. And this is when I start basically foaming at the mouth and saying, but they may <laughs> not be getting the right services. I know, the and behavior. I know you're so passionate about that. And I love that about you, Tatiana, because you're exactly right. If you are treating everything as... A behavior issue and doing tons of behavioral modification things, which you need to do too, but you need to couple it with other interventions which are appropriate to the child's real problems. And I hear that all the time. You know what I hear it all the time from speech therapists dealing with kids with other diagnosed or undiagnosed alcohol-related deficits? I hear it. I've been doing this so many times. That kid is doing this on purpose. They're just not learning. And, of course, that's not true. They're not. not It's not on purpose. They have difficulty learning from experience, but you're blaming their behavior. You should not do that. That is not right because you're not being brought in your approach to this. You're being kind of passive, and you're you're just kind of not really changing the status quo. He's I am teaching him the same thing over and over again, and he's misbehaving or not getting it over and over again. Then where exactly are you expecting change to happen? It's not a miracle. Right. shouldn't be expecting miracles, you know? Yeah, and I think this happens even in early intervention. It really, really does. And sometimes therapists, because they don't know any better, do kind of write off a kid or a family without really addressing what's truly gone on that's contributed or or is, you know, the the biggest underlying factor. And they do just kind of, again, write off a whole kid or a whole family with, they're just bad apples. It's not going to get any better. There's, this is, there's nothing I can do about this. Right. They they're saying, oh, I'm dismissive. sorry. This is my favorite. They're saying, oh, she's just allowing for that kid's behavior. She's doing nothing to change that kid's behavior. She's just, you know, allowing, allowing that kid to act this way. No, right. she's not. She's at a wit's end. Right. She has no idea right. what to do because she also is in the same boat as you. She doesn't understand why those behaviors are happening. So parents get very, exactly. very frustrated as well. That's why parent yeah. education is such a key in what we do. It is, but it all start, It does go back to that diagnosis, Tatiana. And I will tell you, I, I sometimes have erred on the side of if a parent doesn't want a diagnosis, let's not pursue this right now. You know, and and again, because I'm seeing babies in that birth to three period, and I'm thinking emotionally they're not really ready for this yet. They there are so many other factors to address the diagnostic piece later. We just got to get intervention going. But I certainly appreciate your passionate <laughs> disagreement with why we have to have the appropriate diagnosis. 
Yeah, and I think, and I understand completely, but usually it depends on, it's very interesting because it's very, sometimes it's, you know, of course it's very important to find out what are the parents' grounds of having a specific diagnosis. And in general, I think if you can present a compelling case and explain all the evidence in a very kind of dispassionate yet educational way, the parent might, you know, the parent might agree, but of course... There, there could be tons of reasons why parents don't want a diagnosis. And I can also tell you something else. I've actually, you know, some of the kids who I knew for a fact had fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, but had very, very mild manifestations and, you know, who were functioning just beautifully. I actually was the one who suggested to the parents, you know what, I don't want your kid to have that label in the schools. That's and going to be counterproductive. Yeah. Your kid is in regular right. education. He's doing fabulously. Let's not right. rock the boat. If a time exactly. comes when we feel like the diagnosis is needed, it will be made then. But your child is functioning fantastically. Let's not go there. I, the diagnosis, I am kind of advocating for diagnosis to the kids who truly need that, who are receiving, you. you know, who are being mismanaged, for example, medically, and who are not exactly. benefiting from pills, exactly. or who's overall you know overall functioning is so incredibly impaired that right. you know everybody's at the wit's end about what to do with them and how yeah, to best treat them yeah and there needs to be an explanation for that so that the wrong things aren't blamed and so the intervention can get on the right course and so i i, I do appreciate that so much and 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 think that's a great great point well, Tatiana, I think you could probably talk about this for another couple of hours, but we are at the end of our show. Absolutely. I've been minding the clock as well. I think you have to get going, too, on to your next appointment. But thank you again for being such a great guest and sharing this information. I know that parents and therapists alike are going to benefit from your knowledge today. Thank you so much, Laura, again for having me. It was a pleasure. And if you can send me those links to those articles you mentioned, I'll be glad to put those up on teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page and then on the website as well because I know there are therapists who are really looking forward to this show because I've gotten emails and Facebook messages. So I'll, I'll be glad to share those resources if you'll forward those on to me. Yeah, absolutely, and I'd love to share, share it on my Facebook page as well, which is Smart Speech Therapy page. So if you want to also, once you post it on your page, if you want to hashtag me, my practice, I'll it. do the same thing on my practice so we can, because between the both of us, we both have over well over 4,000 followers. So it would be, uh, you know, great yeah. to try to incorporate as many people as possible into this resource. I Mm -hmm. I would love it. That would be super. Thanks again, Tatiana. Happy holidays to you. I hope you have a great December. Thank you. You as well. Take care now. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. On next week's show, we're going to finish up the topic we started last week with ideas for kids who don't like toys. So join me then, and we'll be back on our regular day on Monday at 3 o'clock Eastern time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.